Welcome to Conversations with Dennis House by Seasons Magazine, presented by Middlesex Health. I will be your host, Dennis House. Every month, we'll talk to the biggest names in the state of Connecticut, as well as some big movers and shakers in your neighborhood. We're here to spread positivity and a sense of community through just sitting down and talking to each other. Today, we have a great show for you. We'll be talking with soccer star Christine Lilly. We'll also be talking about weight loss surgery with Dr. Jonathan Aronel of Middlesex Health. And we're going to be talking about two big organizations that bring sports and entertainment to Connecticut's capital city, the Hartford Yard Goats and the Hartford Athletic. But we begin with Christine Lilly. Christine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for those who don't know, Christine is a soccer superstar, a legend. Tell us a little bit about your life and career. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm hitting like the, the 50 mark. This is my 50th <laughs> birthday coming up. And I'm like, I can't even think about everything. I'm like, what happened? Uh, but you know what? I, I have to say my time on the national team for 23 years was incredible. Um, obviously winning World Cups, a couple of those and a couple of gold medals were great. But the amount of time I got to train with some amazing people and players was so wonderful. And I traveled the, the world playing games. Um, I went to the University of North Carolina where I got my degree in communications and won four titles there. I uh, grew up in Connecticut uh, where I went through all the school systems in Wilton, Connecticut and uh, played for my high school team where we won three state titles there. Wow. Uh, played baseball with the boys, played soccer with the boys growing up because the girls weren't quite there yet because we were still growing the game. I mean, shoot, back when I was growing up, we we're still growing the game of soccer for everybody. So um, when you were a kid, there was no girls soccer team. You had to travel for the boys soccer team. Is that how that worked? Or yeah, they didn't cool? have a girls travel team. And then I think when I was younger, we did. They just had co-ed pretty much until okay. like seventh grade, maybe. So, yeah, so there wasn't girls team. So I, I played with the boys and my mom had me keep a ponytail so they knew I was a girl out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, who knows? There's a guy with a ponytail, girl with short hair, so it doesn't really matter these days. And I loved it. I loved it. My first love was baseball. I loved hardball. I thought I would play second base for the Yankees one day. And that was some, that's something I really loved. Uh, but soccer is something I excelled at and just something I really started to love and obviously had a great career with it. I want to touch on this baseball thing a little bit. So when you went to high school, and I don't remember what it was like then, but but did you were girls allowed to play in the baseball team? Well, when I got to high school, so I played from second grade, to eighth grade hardball. And then when I got to high school, they had a girls softball team. So I joined the softball team. Okay. So, the, but, but they wouldn't allow the girls to play on the baseball team if they I, wanted. I think at that point I was like, you know what? I don't mind playing softball. Um, so I just jumped on. But when I went to my freshman year in high school, they didn't have a girls freshman soccer team, but they had a boys freshman team. And my parents were like, we'll fight for you to play with the boys if you want to on the freshman team. And then I was like, you know what? They had a JV and varsity. So I'm like, I'll try out for the JV and varsity. Um, and I think it, and when you hit high school, the boys, they get bigger and stronger and faster. Yeah. And girls physiques don't be as strong as them. <laughs> so you started playing soccer at a very young age. When did you realize, and when did other people start to realize that, Hey, Christine's a really good soccer player, like one of the best. Yeah, you know, I think even with the boys, I mean, when you're second, I mean, second grade to eighth grade, my daughter's third, so she's going to be so like nine to like 13. You, you know, you're just playing. And and I was I was just as quick as the boys then. And then as they got older, they started to catch up. Uh, but I think in high school is really when I really started to realize I was dominating because I was now joining the girls and I was really a lot better than a lot of them. And people started to talk then. Um, but I think when I was playing with the boys, they're always like, Oh, there's a girl on the team. 
Um, even when I played hardball, baseball too. So I think just being able to hang with them, I think uh, people started to see that I had some talents. But then once you went to college mm -hmm. and then you were discovered nationally, correct? Yeah, actually, I got discovered from the national team before college. I was a junior in high school. So I made the national team when I was 16. So I was able to somehow be seen by Anson playing for my state team in Connecticut and regionals. And that's how you're seen. That's how you were seen back in the day. Now the club systems kind of take over. And then uh, Mia, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, and Joy Fawcett, the four of us, got recognized by Anson in 87 and joined the national team then. Did you ever suffer any serious injuries playing all these years? Mm, no, I was lucky. Towards the end of my career, uh, from like, I think 2001 on, I had a back pain a lot that I kind of pushed through and I got some PT work on it and helped. And now I'm just, I just get sore and tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe the years are catching me now. <laughs> Yeah, what is your daily life like now? What do you do? What do I do? I just did. I've been doing a private lesson for this girl this week. Uh, just trained a girl for an hour. I do a workout. I take my dog for a hike. I uh, wait for my kids to get home from school. I do a lot of emails. I'm getting ready to gear up for my camps for this summer. I do a lot of public speaking, podcasts. So a variety. I'm real busy sometimes, and then sometimes I'm not so busy. And I'm coaching in my town for this fall, this spring seasons. That must be pretty cool to be a coach in your town. I mean, other parents who are like, hey, our coach is Christine Lilly. I know because I coach football in my town and we have a couple of former NFL players yeah. who, who were there and they coach. I mean, you know, they weren't really well known, but they did play in the, the NFL at one point. So it must be kind of a big deal in your town. Yeah, I think I think so. Sometimes I don't hear a lot of things and whether people uh, I'm coaching and I just had to make some cuts. So I'm not sure. Some people don't like me right now, but, um, but for the most part, it's pretty neat. And I think some people don't realize that I'm there sometimes when we play other teams and they're like, Oh my gosh, is that Christine Lilly? Because they're not expecting me to be in this a small town, okay. you know, atmosphere. And I think uh, that keeps me, you know, it, it's great. Cause I get, I get enough recognition where I appreciate it. And then enough where I can just be with my family and friends and everything's cool. How has soccer changed over the years in your judgment? Well, I think initially when I think about soccer's change is just how well it's received nowadays, how popular it is. I think when I was growing up and on the national team at such a young age, we were educating people and telling them, oh, yeah, we have a U.S. women. We have a national team. We represent, you know, our country. Now everybody knows the names of these players. And now it's like you're trying to get the ticket to the game. So I think in that sense of the, the attention and the the love of the game is there. And I think the game has grown. My girls are nine and 12 and they're coming through. They're doing things that I wasn't doing at their age, like skill wise. And so they're just being taught a little bit more by people that know the game. Cause growing up, my dad and mom had no clue about soccer. My dad knew stickball and baseball. Now they're getting taught by people that know the game. But I think in the, on the flip side of that, we also do miss some of the fun because now we're just so in tune to training kids to be better than this. And then we're really missing the piece of like, okay, we got to train, but also make this an enjoyable place for these kids to be. What would you tell the 14 year old girl who is a pretty good soccer player, mm -hmm. but her goal is to go national to be, Maybe make the Olympics. You never know. Yeah. Uh, what would you tell her? Well, you, you, 14 years old. I mean, you look at that. I was freshman high school. I would say keep doing what you're doing because obviously you're doing something right if you're being somewhat recognized and then work hard. And and when I, I tell these to people, they're like, really? I mean, that's all. I'm like, yes, work hard. It's not go outside for eight hours of work. It's like if you got an hour, make sure you get and train what put into that hour the best you can that's going to get you better. Not spending three hours out there just messing around and 
the putting that effort in. And also these players don't know that they can do more. So you need yeah. to play up with players that are a little bit better than you. So you can see what the level you're trying to reach for and then come back down and play with a level that you're confident with. So you can build the confidence because you can't play up here the whole time. Cause if you keep getting feeling like you're not as good and yeah. it feels good. So you got to have a balance. Tell us about the camp that you run. So I've been doing my Christine Lilly soccer Academy. I mean, shoot since 1995, Wow. I'm getting, I'm getting like emails from kids that are like, oh, I, I did your camp when I was in second grade and they're like 25 now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do it. I started in my hometown of Wilton, Connecticut. And I, I used to go when I was playing, I used to go back uh, one week out of the summer and just do my camp. Um, so I'm still doing it in my hometown. I didn't get to do it last year because of COVID, uh, but now I'm coming back. And then I've started doing it in Medfield where I'm now. Um, and I do a week and I train kids and it's a fun atmosphere and I seem to get a lot of kids to come back. So it's exciting for me to, to see that. And now I told you some kids want to coach, so that's even better. That is good. What do you love about Connecticut? What are your favorite Connecticut memories? Oh gosh. I just remember in my hometown, just going down to the fields and playing. I mean, uh, back in the day, our town wasn't as built up as it is now and it's still not very built up, but my cousin, and I used to go bike rides and go through the woods and, and just be kids. You know, that's what I love. It was, a, it yeah. was a nice community. Um, everybody kind of knew each other. So we looked out for each other and I love just playing sports. Um, and I have to say, I've trained my, most of my career I trained in Wilton. So I was at our track a lot running the trails. I was running hills um, near my dad's road where we grew up. So it was one of my places where I, I think of fondly because it's where a lot of my training took place. Christine, you have a new book out. Tell us all about it. I lived in Austin, Texas for three, three years and I was coaching assistant coach there at the University of Texas. And I met this family that our kids were up playing soccer with and I was coaching with the dad. And he finally realized who I was and what I did. And, and we started to talk about the national team a lot and the six success of the national team. I mean, the U.S. team, we won World Cups and gold medals, but we've been at the top of the world for, I was on 23 years. I mean, now we're going 30-something years. We've been one of the top teams in the world. And why are we so successful? And so he's like, you need to write a book. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, when I look at, he's in the business world. He goes, when I look at the business world, people aren't working together. People are trying to get up the ladder, but they're not really working together. You need to like share your success of the national team to the world, not just the sports world, yeah. but the business world and help these organizations be better. So we wrote, we co I co-authored the book with John Gillis, Dr. John Gillis and Dr. Lynette Gillis. And it's about the success of the national team. And there's 13 tactics going off my number and it's called powerhouse. And basically we talk about communication, leadership, foundation, culture, and each chapter at the end is an interview with one of my former teammates. So they share, they experience with the national team and why our team is successful. So I do a ton of speaking on that, especially like to high school and college kids. I go to their teams and talk about it. And then they have like a book club. So we discuss a little bit of it. So it's been really fun for me to add this to what I do when I normally speak. Christina, I've interviewed many authors and many of them tell me that obviously you have to be reflective to write a book, but sometimes you'll learn stuff about yourself. As you put this together, what did you learn about Christine Lilly as you wrote this book? Uh, I learned that I was a better soccer player than writer. <laughs> 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 no, but I learned that um, what I loved is just reliving a little bit of my career, but also it reiterated me so much more when I wrote this book, how great my teammates were, because in the beginning of the process, I needed to reach out to my teammates like Mia, Julie, Carla, Michelle, Brandy, um, 
Megan Rapino and Alex, and I needed to reach them out so we could schedule interviews. And I was like, oh gosh, I was almost a little stressed because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're so busy. I don't want to add something else to them. But the cool thing is once I put a text out or email out, I was like, hey girls, I'm writing this book. I would love for you guys to do an interview. They all were like, let me know what, what day, what time, and I'll be there. So it just made me realize how great these women are, not just because what they did on the field, but because they were such good people and they did things for the right reasons. So I really appreciated that. Excellent. Do you think you'll write another one after going through one book? Mm, probably not. <laughs> it was like marathons, one and done. I did a marathon of all. I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, how was that marathon? Was that? Oh, uh... it was awful. It was great and awful on the same set. <laughs> I, I, the great thing about it is I ran for Children's Hospital Boston and raised $21,000. Well, that it is was, good. It was, it was 2012. I just had my baby in 2011, so I needed motivation. And then it was the ninth, the year that was 90 degrees and I hit mile 15 and I thought my legs were, I felt like someone was just punching my legs every step I took, but I made it and I will never do it again, but I am so grateful that I did it. (laughs) Well, you're an inspiration to many young women, athletes, young girls out there. And we thank you for joining us, Christine Lillian. Best of luck with your book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're listening to Conversations with Dennis House by Seasons Magazines, presented by Middlesex Health. People all across Connecticut suffer from weight gain and some even obesity, but there are some solutions. And one of them is surgery, weight loss surgery. Joining us now is Dr. Jonathan Arano. He is with Middlesex Health. Dr. Arano, thanks for being with us. Sure. Happy to be here, Dennis. So I was reading about this, and when a person comes to see you and they're overweight and they're concerned about their weight, what's the first thing that is done? I direct both the medical and a surgical weight loss program. So usually when they're coming to see me, I kind of know what direction they're leaning towards. Obviously, the surgical routes are for people with higher weight issues and tend to be a more of a chronic health issue. So when they come to see me, they usually have already, my staff has already had them watch our seminars that we have instructional seminars before their first meeting. Um, So if somebody's scheduling a surgical consultation, ever since COVID started, we've had these online seminars that are available on the hospital website. It used to be I do it all in person with a big group seminar so people would be educated before they came in and sought that personal attention. So when a patient comes to see you and it's already been determined that the best course of action for them to lose weight is surgery, what do you tell them? So what I'll usually do with my seminars, which is where they get their foundation knowledge, is I talk about why we do surgery. We talk a bit about the disease of obesity and why obesity is you know, just like any other chronic illness. It's like hypertension or diabetes. You know, If you see your primary care doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, I've not been feeling well, and they check your blood work and they say, oh, look, you've got a little diabetes or you've got a little bit of high blood pressure. The first thing that's usually done is let's fix your diet and exercise and overall health. And when that doesn't work, they start treating you with medications. Uh, Obesity is very much the same. We start with conservative measures of of lifestyle changes. The problem with obesity though is physicians in general don't treat it as a disease. So when lifestyle changes don't work, they kind of give up and patients are left sort of without guidance. And even though there's numerous medications that can be done, there's a lot of interventions that can be done before we get to the point where surgery is needed, that's been neglected. So I start my conversations about the early stages of obesity. Once you're at sort of 100 pounds or more overweight, surgery is really the only thing that's got proven long-term effectiveness. 
then we talk about diabetes and the high blood pressure and how they're all curable with surgical weight loss. What does the surgery entail? Well, there's a bunch of different surgeries. Most of them involve changing how your body responds to internal hormones. The most common ones people know about are gastric bypass and sleeve and lap bands. Lap bands have sort of fallen out of favor because they just don't work. They don't affect hormones. They, they were, that was a procedure that made your stomach smaller. So if you ate too much, you'd get sick. The metabolic procedures, uh, the things that I focus on, bypass sleeve and this SADI or duodenal switch procedure, eliminate the hormones that drive hunger. So it involves very often the stapling procedure to either make the stomach smaller or reroute the way that food is digested. And the side effect of that is it reduces the hormones in your body that stimulate hunger. There is a component of making the stomach smaller so you feel full, but the common misperception is that this surgery just makes you unable to eat. Instead, what it does is it, they make you less hungry and perhaps absorb foods differently so that you can lose weight without feeling hungry, without actually being on a diet. What are some of the benefits of this surgery? And a question I know many people are probably wondering about, what are the risks? The first obvious thing is there's tremendous weight loss. Majority of the surgeries carry a 90 plus percent long-term success rate at maintaining long-term improvement in overall weight. It kind of does depend on what procedure you choose, which will give you more effectiveness. You know, I operated on number of diabetics in the past two weeks, and almost all of them went home free of diabetes. Um, the SADI procedure gives an 85% cure for diabetes. Uh, the gastric bypass gives about a 55% long-term cure for diabetes. There's no cures for diabetes out there other than surgical procedures. And these procedures are actually approved for patients without severe uh, morbid obesity, patients of more modest weight, because they're curative for hypertension and diabetes. So we see about 80 to 90% cure for hypertension, uh, as high as 85% cures for diabetes. We've got 90% resolution for, for sleep apnea. And the trade-off is that it's a procedure that really has very few risks. In fact, the most common misconception is that these are high-risk procedures. But if you look at like the Medicare databases for high-risk patients, that's what Medicare populations are, the risk of complications from a gastric bypass are half that of having your gallbladder removed. And it's very rare to find somebody who's going to be hesitant about having a diseased gallbladder removed, yet we see this reticence of treating with surgical weight loss when we're curing diabetes and high blood pressure and reducing cancer risks. What is the recovery time after, let's say, a gastric bypass? Like how long are you in the hospital and when can you get back to normal? Most patients are just in overnight. I do my procedures using robotic assistance. So there's very six, five or six very small incisions that really don't cause much discomfort. The patients are usually in the hospital overnight or at most two nights and really little discomfort. I don't put any restrictions on my patients. They can get back to exercise and regular activities. Um, usually within a week to two weeks, they're pretty much feeling back to normal. People with desk jobs, working from home, they're back to work within a week or two. Heavy physical and manual labor, usually it's two weeks till they're back to work. And in terms of how people go about setting this up, does insurance usually covered or is it something you need to pay out of pocket for? Well, most of my patients are covered by insurance. Connecticut, unfortunately, has some of the worst insurance policies regarding bariatric surgery in the Northeast. Every state from Maryland up to Maine covers bariatric surgery through the General Policies and Affordable Care Act. Connecticut's kind of unique in that it's only available right now to individuals who, whose employers have purchased an additional rider. 
So many of my patients are state of Connecticut employees or municipal employees or work for large businesses. If you're a small business right now or individual uh, insurance policy, you don't have coverage. But there is uh, right now there still is some legislation in the Connecticut General, General Assembly that may make it possible. But right now it's, it's kind of tough. But most patients, we try to get them insurance coverage. And I always encourage patients to at least make the appointment, let us explore what options there are. Who is the average patient here in terms of what is their demographic makeup in terms of age and so forth? Probably about 80% of my patients are women, um, usually in 40s, 50s years of age, though I see all different ages from ages, you know, in their 20s up to their 70s. And they've just been heavy most of their lives. Some of them haven't been heavy until they hit menopause, but it's interfering with their quality of life. Um, it's interfering with their health and they're looking for a change and they've been through diets and they just don't work. And at that level of weight, most diets don't work. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a, a matter of having to survive on very low calories. And even people with weight loss surgery, they're going to be on 1,000, 1,500 calories a day. And, you know, if you're eating 1,000 calories a day and you're still up 200 pounds, it really attests to there's a metabolic problem. This is not a, a disease of willpower. Once you have the surgery, are there any follow-up surgeries or procedures that you need to go through, or is it basically one and done? For the most part, it's one and done. I mean, but there is a whole post-operative care program. So I see my patients two weeks, three, six weeks, three months, six months, every six months, really, for the first two years, and then annually thereafter. We have dietary counseling. We have multiple dietitians in our program. We've got nurse practitioners who also provide additional supportive care, sometimes Surgery is not enough. We need to add medications that may improve metabolism or appetite suppression. So there's a whole multidisciplinary approach to the surgical patient, both beforehand and after. The procedure is probably most common in this country is the sleeve gastrectomy. And that's actually only got about an 80% long-term success. So sometimes there are adjunctive surgeries that we need to do. The, the SADI procedure or duodenal switch procedure is actually a second stage to the sleeve that gives even better long-term results than all the other procedures that are out there. So sometimes we might have a secondary procedure, but for the most part, one and done is our goal. I know a lot of doctors go into the medical profession because they want to help people. They want to make them feel better about themselves. And when you talk to someone who's been through this surgery, on an emotional level, how does it make you feel once you know that you've really changed someone's life forever? You know, I've been doing this for 22 years. Um, I started the bariatric program at Middlesex around 2001, and it is rare for me not to hear a patient say, this has changed my life, it's the best thing I ever did. Um, there is a reason why I have given up on general surgery to focus on this. Um, I do this surgery, I do it well, and my patients are thrilled. I've done cancer surgery, I've done surgery, general surgery for other issues, but you know what, here not only do I see a major change in the patient's quality of life and overall health, but I also have a relationship with the patient that is potentially lifelong, where it's not just, it's not the one and done. It's, we've done a surgery, I see the improvement, and I get to be personally rewarded by seeing that patient do well for the next several decades. I would encourage your listeners to, to reach out to their state legislators to, to say, hey, this should be a covered uh, should be covered by insurance policies. Um, you know, we need to advocate for ourselves, and this is a population of patients who really are 
struggling with bias and uh, not recognized to have a real health issue. And I think we need to change those policies in the state. I also would encourage you know, patients who've had weight loss surgery who aren't doing well. It's very often just a matter of either some tweaks and support with dietitians or with medications. And for those patients with sleeves, there are additional surgeries to do. And you may need more surgery that can really change your life. So again, I really like how you said one and done and how it's very much not that. Um, I encourage any listener who has a surgery, keep following up with your bariatric surgeon um, because it's only going to make the long-term results better. Dr. Jonathan Arano, we thank you so much for joining us for Middlesex Health. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Hartford Whalers left Connecticut's capital city in 1997, but now we have two teams that are really picking up the slack and they're giving fans a reason to wear their blue and green once again. We are joined now by Tim Restall. He's the president of the Hartford Yard Goats and the president of Hartford Athletic. Is also with us, Bruce Mandel. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Well, it's great to talk with you both. Five years ago, we didn't have either one of you, and now we have both. And they're both in the beloved blue and green. So first of all, in a nutshell, and Tim, I'll start with you. Give us just a little history of the Hartford Yard Goats. So the uh, Hartford Yard Goats is a double-A minor league baseball team that plays in downtown Hartford. They started in 2016 on the road, and we opened up Dunkin' Donuts Park in 2017. We are a double-A for the Colorado Rockies, which is great. But if you're a New England fan, whether you're Mets, Yankees, or Red Sox, a Rockies or a Rockies fan, we play some great major league affiliates. So you get to see all the future major leaguers come through Hartford and take the field. So we play about 60 home games a year, and we're excited to be here. And Bruce Mendel, now it's your turn. Tell us a little bit about The Athletic. We started in uh, 2019. We're a professional uh, men's pro team playing soccer here in out of uh, Dillon Stadium in Hartford. We play in the second tier of American soccer, so right below the MLS. We started out at Rentschler, and then we built up our beautiful Dillon Stadium, and uh, we've been running from them. It used to be that people were kind of hesitant to invest in Connecticut, and specifically even in the capital city, but this has proven to be a pretty solid sports market, as you two both have shown. Tim, did it exceed your expectations? Absolutely. You know, when we were doing a bunch of research with the Name the Team contest, and obviously, if you look at our both our logos and pay homage to the Whalers, Connecticut sports fans, you know, were robbed of their NHL team, ripped out of the community. And the sports fans are extremely loyal. I mean, if you go to a Yargos game or you go to a Hartford Athletic game, you see all the fans wearing the gear. And that just says that we have the best fans in all of sports here in, in Connecticut. And we've seen that with voting for best ballpark where our fans have come out they come out and support all all the sports teams so it's 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 definitely better than expected bruce for several years now the hartford whalers merchandise has still been selling at a very brisk pace even though the team has been gone for now 24 years almost a quarter of a century when you were first developing the theme hartford athletic and the colors and the logo did the blue and green was that automatic for you yeah, that was probably the easiest decision we had. To Tim's point, it's a scar here in, in Connecticut and in Hartford losing the Whalers. And, and I know Tim feels the same way. Bringing back uh, high-level 
sports to what is a, a really strong sports-centric state has been fantastic. And, and to Tim's point, the loyalty of the fans is incredible. Last year, in a pandemic year, uh, our season ticket holders, we had 95% renewals, 95%. So um, that just shows you how loyal and how strong the Connecticut base is, which is phenomenal. I think to Tim's point, we're also both building upon that and, uh, and how it relates to the community. What goes through your mind on a personal level when you, and we'll begin with you, Tim, on this, when you're out somewhere and you see a yard goat hat or a yard goat shirt, what do you think to yourself? I pinch myself because it was five or six years ago when we were designing that logo and, you know, coming up with the name, the team and just seeing it. As we uh, welcome fans back into Dunkin' Owens Park this year, our merchandise is flying off the the shelves, which is great. So whether, you know, last night I had um, received a text message from someone watching the Mets game and they saw a yard goats hat or a jersey at the Mets game, like constantly seeing the yard goats gear all throughout the country. It's just it's exciting to see. And just it's you know, it represents the area, which is great. And the same for the Hartford Athletic. When I see things out there, it, it, there's a sense of pride just being from the capital city and the whole bit. And when you see them overseas, and I know there's probably a decent overseas following for the Hartford Athletic because of uh, soccer, right, Bruce? Yeah, we, we have over 3,000 fans internationally who tune into our game. That's wow. incredible. And we try to splash our uniforms wherever we can. It's the biggest seller we have is our uniforms because I think people – really love to wear the Yargoats uniform or our or shirts and our uniforms. I mean, it's a way to walk around and feel really proud about what's going on and what's happening and be and kind of be part of a of something that's, you know, bigger than yourself. And sports sports are amazing at that. Yeah, and I think too that you promote each other. For example, let's say that you're going to a Yard Goats game last minute, someone gives you some tickets like Oh, my yard goat shirts are in the wash or whatever. You can wear your Hartford Athletic shirt. You can probably get away with it there. It'd be nice if um, if the Hartford Wolfpack would adopt the green and the blue as well and just uh, you know spread that out there because it is sort of a – they are the colors of Hartford. They are the colors of Connecticut's capital city, the green and blue, without a doubt. And I think you both have done an amazing job at that. I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic and – how it has impacted attendance this year. And Tim, I know that at the beginning of the year, you were talking about maybe a scaled back year, but now you're being able to wrap it up a little bit more. What's happening? Yeah, so we opened May 11th, which the governor had current restrictions, which was 50% capacity with six foot distancing. On May 19th, all those restrictions went away. So we created some policies about if you are vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. If you're unvaccinated, we encourage you to wear a mask. And we just kept all our protocols in place for our cleaning, our hand sanitizer, everything in the ballpark. And we've been very fortunate that fans are eager to get back out to the ballpark and watch live sports. We often say it's like we're getting our, our outdoor voices ready so that we can you know, cheer on teams and such. And <laughs> our baseball team is uh, doesn't have a ton of wins, but the other night we were down by eight runs and it was the ninth inning and we still had thousands of fans cheering on the Argos to the last out. So I think we're all, all the fans in the Hartford area are excited to get back to watching live sports. Bruce, tell us about some of the other teams that come to visit you. From which cities are they coming? 
Yeah, the, the, the USL has uh, 31 teams and they're from some of the largest cities. We have Pittsburgh coming in and Tampa Bay and Charlotte and Charleston and Miami. We're really proud to invite these clubs in. We're on national TV. We have all of our games are on ESPN Plus and on uh, locally on a local channel here on TNH. So it's just fantastic to even to go to these cities, to bring these cities in and really show off Hartford. Um, and when they see our fans going crazy and our East bleachers, um, we get calls from all over my friends, the owners just saying, what is going on in Hartford? That yeah. looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Tim, someone asked me the other day, uh, they said, oh, it'd be great if the Argos were an affiliate of the Mets or the Yankees or the Red Sox. And I said, you know, I think it really works to our advantage to actually have an affiliation with a team that's not nearby here because sometimes people are very loyal to those major league teams. And if they were Yankees affiliate, let's say, you may not get Red Sox fans to go. They might refuse to step foot in there. And I think having someone where I, I don't know that there's a built-in huge Rockies audience in Connecticut right now, but there certainly is a big yard goats audience. Would you agree with that? Or just oh, absolutely. There's no Rockies uh, fans and very few in Connecticut, which is, <laughs> which is great. You know, and the part of it is that if you're a Red Sox, you're a Yankees, you're a Mets affiliate. Like you said, you, you would have a lot of fans that might not come, but being a national league affiliate with the Rockies and for us, the baseball it's, it, you know, double a baseball is all about development. It's about getting these players to the major league. So we've had Brandon Rogers come through who's playing for the, uh, the Rockies. We've had Ryan McMahon. We had some great prospects come through, but also we've seen some great prospects from come through. So we've had Red Sox, Yankees, Mets, Orioles, um, everyone coming through that is, so these are great prospects that you get to see and, you know, really get to see them in downtown Hartford. People really want to be able to walk out of that stadium or go there earlier and maybe grab both stadiums, both Dillon Field, you know, Dillon Stadium and Duncan Oates Park. What is the latest on the development around those two places in terms of being able to make those neighborhoods uh, more entertaining and more attractive to visitors? I'll begin with you on this one, Bruce. We're about uh, a half mile from uh, downtown Hartford and we have people who march, they go out, grab a bite to eat, grab a few beers or whatever, and walk over to the stadium. Uh, it's a beautiful walk, actually. There's a local brewery uh, nearby the stadium, so that gets filled up. And that's then, in the Colt uh, uh, Armory, right? Yeah, that's in the Colt building, yeah. correct? And um, and then we have our tailgating, which is just an incredible community kind of uh, outing where people are there cooking up things and and having a few drinks and having fun and singing songs. So it's, it's really, Dennis, an, an opportunity to bring people downtown in a safe way, in a fun way. And that just creates momentum. It creates momentum to come back to downtown. It's just not that night. It's just showing that there's things to do in Hartford, sure. which are a blast to do. And Tim, around Dunkin' Donuts Park, I know that I got a tour with you and Randy Salvatore earlier this year. At the time, there wasn't much build. It was basically a pile of dirt and some cement. How is it looking lately? And what do you expect in terms of when things will be opening? It's looking a little bit more, but there's elevator shafts in. It's it's a very active construction site, and they're flying. So I don't know when their date is, when they're going to be done. 
But our goal is always to bring people to downtown Hartford. So whether you're coming to a yard goats game or you're going to go out and visit one of the restaurants ahead of time or go to Salute or Vons, it's doing these events in downtown Hartford. And, and I was talking about earlier today that we had 22 graduations at Dunkin' Donuts Park this year. So wow, these are all great. events that are bringing people to downtown Hartford. They're visiting restaurants, they're visiting shops, and it's bringing life back into the city. Bruce, as I recall... Someone once told me that the Rolling Stones played at Dillon Stadium once. Is that true? That is true, as well as the Beach Boys, the Grateful Dead, Dillon, Frampton, Dennis, all those amazing, iconic bands. And here's the cool thing. We are now um, beginning to utilize Dillon for events. So we're looking to have a boxing match in there later this summer. And in September, we're looking at some uh, music to come in a few festivals. Um, again, like Tim said, anything we can do to highlight how much fun and the experience in Hartford is is, is just great for our, our, our city and our community. It's nice how you two complement each other because really it's not that far of a walk from one park to the other, is it? No, not at all. And you know, the part of it is that it's bringing the people downtown Hartford. It's, it's connecting it. And whether you're going to Dillon Stadium or you're going to Dunkin' Donuts Park, it's an exit away. I think just to add to that, some of the best nights in Hartford are the nights when we both have games. We love those nights. Um, we absolutely love it. I mean, what's more exciting when you have t- multiple events happening in Hartford? I think for Tim and the Argos have done such an amazing job. They really greased the wheels for us to come in and, uh, and help build upon it. It's amazing how the attitude toward downtown Hartford has changed in the last 20 years, because I remember years ago, there was a basketball tournament downtown, and I think they changed another event because they said, we don't want too many people downtown at once. That's a good problem to have. So that attitude is great. We want a lot of people downtown all at once. That's great. That's a great problem. A couple of years ago, when uh, Cirque du Soleil was coming downtown, or coming to Market Street, and we partner with Last Parking, and they they were telling me about this, and they're like, well, we're you're gonna lose parking for a month, and I said, that's a great problem. It's a great problem to lose parking. And they had a game plan and we adjusted and it was for 30 days. But for those 30 days, we had other events going on in downtown Hartford. And that's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Tim Restall from the Hartford Yard Goats and Bruce Mandel from the Hartford Athletic. We wish you both tremendous success. Your organizations are huge assets to our entire state. So thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Thank you, Dennis. And thanks, Tim, for all the great work you're doing with the Argos. <laughs> thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Dennis. We thank you so much for listening to this edition of Conversations with Dennis House for Seasons Magazines. We look forward to seeing you next time on our next edition. And we invite you to share this on social media. And you can find us on social media. Just look for Seasons Magazines or find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you.